0: If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to this show, visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz and get your CPE certificate. Now on to the show. From Data rails,
1: this is FPNA today.
0: Hello, welcome to today's FP&A Today podcast. I'm really excited to talk about what just happened over the last few days with Silicon Valley Bank. So we'd like to welcome all of you. If you can hear us there out on LinkedIn, just go ahead and put something in the comments. Let us know that you can hear us talking here. I'm going to start real quick by just uh, covering a few items before I introduce our guests. So first, as mentioned, this podcast we set this up over the weekend. We're going to talk about what just happened with the uh, banking situation. You know, how that may impact people in FPNA. We have a couple of uh, CFOs with us and we're hopefully going to have another guest here join us shortly. And then also, I just want to remind people, we also released today our uh, podcast episode. You can go to any of your podcast sites to download that about Chat GPT by Glenn Hopper. He built an FPNA tool. And then the other exciting thing is Chat GPT four was just released. So a lot going on at the moment. Thanks, Mark, for confirming the audio is good. Zach, appreciate that guys. So what we're going to do here is we're going to go ahead and introduce our guests and then we'll uh, get into some of the questions we have. And please, you know, we're going to allow you as an audience to ask questions as we go throughout this. And hopefully we'll have another panelist join us here shortly. So Josh, why don't I start with you? If you could go ahead
2: and take a minute and introduce yourself. Sure thing. Uh, Some of you may know me as my LinkedIn persona, your CFO guy. I am the CEO of an exciting company called Mighty Digits. We are a finance and accounting consulting firm for startups, and I post every day finance and accounting tips on LinkedIn. Thank you, Josh. We'll next go to uh, CJ if you just want to give an introduction there.
3: Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. So my name is CJ Gustafson. I'm a CFO at a Series B startup. Um, I've been in the startup space on the private equity side and helping to scale venture-backed companies for the last ten years. So excited to be here!
0: Great. And then Casey Wu, if you could introduce yourselves to the audience.
3: Yeah, hey, everyone. I'm Casey Wu, based in
1: uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, I'm a, a recovering Wall Street investor, current startup operator. Uh, I would I'd be what you call an operating CFO. So i seed A, B, C, D, pre-IPO. Most notably, as we work, lot of stories there. I think more importantly, though, is I my my side project is called the Operator Skill, which has become more than a side project, and uh, it's it's home to 700 of the world's top operators in the world CFO, CLO, BizOps, Strategy.
0: And thank you for joining us. So you know, I chose these people because I feel like each one of them would have a different perspective here. I'd invited a few others, you know, as well, but unfortunately, some of them were caught up and busy with things. Obviously, given all that's gone on. So maybe we could just start with a question here and we'll just, we'll start with you, CJ. Where were you when you first, you know, started hearing rumblings of what was going on over the weekend and what was your initial thinking before, you know, the government stepped in?
3: I was actually at this very desk, but, um, you know, we started to hear rumblings from, actually, I heard it from two sides. So I heard it from one company I actually angel invested in and his investors had reached out early in the morning on Thursday saying that they thought something was up with SVB. And then I heard from investors and kind of the community that I operate in as well. And at first, you know, I didn't think it was a huge deal. And then things just escalated really quickly. It was kind of like watching the Titanic go down in real time in the sense that, you know, it was just speeding up. And overall, I was shocked that it kind of got to that point it felt like, and you know, this is just one guy's opinion. It was a crappy hand that was dealt, but I don't think it needed to go to the point that it went to. And I'm just happy at the end of the day that it sounds like, you know, when I was comparing this to a hurricane, you have different stages of it, whether it's going to be a, a stage five, stage four. It sounds like we're getting out of this with maybe a tropical storm or, you know, a stage one, which, which is good to know that people have money in their operating accounts and can hopefully make payroll.
0: Yeah, no, definitely some scary moments there. How about Josh? Where were you when this first started happening and what was your kind of initial reaction?
2: So I was actually in a meeting and I oftentimes get distracted. So I shut off all my notifications. And right when I came back on, I was about to hop to literally another meeting and I got a text from one of our clients saying, quickly, this is really urgent. Read the news with what's happening with SVB. We have to transfer all of our funds. And I was kind of like, what are you talking about? And I Google and like all of a sudden 40 different search results, like come up and I'm like, what's happening? And then before you know it, like a ton of other clients start messaging me as well. So I got on a call with a few people from my team and I'm like, guys, what's happening? What do we do here? And it was really just like, it, am I really experiencing this? Like SVB, everyone's been banking with them. They're like the number one in the startup space. Like, is this real? So it was just total shock. I could
0: imagine. How about you, Casey? I know you're in the Bay Area, so you're probably in the heart of all this. How did you hear about
1: it? I knew about this three weeks ago. I knew there was something up. Uh, Yes, people joke I should have bought put options, but that's all another story. Well, what happened was actually, and this has been lost in the whole thing, the credit goes to a Financial Times author. The article came out like two weeks ago that SUV had problems. And what happened is in the OG, someone wrote, hey, does anyone see this article? Like, what's up with this? And of course... Other fact is SCB is our longest standing sponsor at OG. So I know them beyond well. So I'll call him Bob. Bob is a 20 year veteran. SCB. Calls me, he goes, hey, I hear OG and subs are talking about we have a liquidity situation with our bonds. Tell them it's not the case. I said, all right, uh, give me your quote. But what I did tell Bob was, Bob, you're going to be the last person to know if there's a real situation. Because in a bet, you think your CEO as SCB is going to be like, hey, by the way, hey, Bob, we got it. You can't say a thing. So the most interesting thing about SUV is there have been a lot of commentary about the worst communication you could possibly have as a bank. Okay, fair. And then there's a they're a public company. B they're a bank. They were struggling with how do you actually warn and assure CFOs, which is my entire community, news is going to come out. It's all good. How are you going to say that as a public stock? And how are you going to say that without panicking everyone? Then I'll fast forward. Then it really hit a week later, where they posted that they did have indeed a liquidity situation with the duration problem. So I was like, oh my God, it is real. Sure enough, my friend Bob was like telling me nothing was happening. He wouldn't know either. Here's how I knew, though. We used to see with all the CFOs, what really happened, the CFOs were like, let's not overreact here. Because we all know what's going to happen if we overreact. It was a massive prisoner's dilemma all sitting there in the chat sorry i'm taking over here because this was like what happened like where i sat is where we pulled all the money and in real time what happened was i get a text i get another text my board member just told me take all the money out right now so what's really interesting who is the real boss of all the money the board the board is the representative investors that own a company so cfos were in this very weird if i pull it it's gonna force everyone else to pull and then our bosses all came down on us the V's, which is why there's a lot of like the VCs. Did. Now, can you blame the VCs? Their entire fund or half their fund could be wiped out. I get it. So it's a prisoner's dilemma, plus you know some information, which means everyone get out because the ratting is happening. And then five calls came in. I added up the math. That was 1.5 billion just in the five people talked to me. Because what would you do? Well, I think the VCs are all pulling. I think. I think you know what you have to do. And and unfortunately, that's what
0: happened. Uh, Thanks for sharing in that. And unfortunately, you know, it makes sense, right? This was a classic prisoner's dilemma, but I think you made a really good point. The the run wasn't dictated so much by the CFOs as it was the VCs. You know, you heard Peter Thiel on Thursday saying, pull all your money. You heard uh, founders fund some others all mentioning, look, we're telling all our clients, pull it now. And right, we all know what happens once you have a run; it's very hard to control. And by Friday morning, the government had to step in because the balance sheet was upside down. I remember being on a podcast as we were getting the news, and we were talking about it live. It just come across the news in the middle of our podcast, and was kind of surreal to me because I remember thinking that morning, "Yeah, I hadn't paid that close attention. Oh, they're going to survive. Maybe I'll buy some stock." And it was they hadn't updated to the after-hour stock price. Well, I'm not paying at at that rate. so I didn't buy and I was really glad that I didn't put any money in. No, this is like last Friday, I considered it. Did you guys see Silicon Valley Bank UK was bought for a dollar?
3: A dollar 20, actually. Well, yes, that's right. Sorry, a
0: pound. You're correct. A dollar 20. Thank you, CJ. <laughs> so your next question, and we'll start here with you on this, Josh. I mean, How do you think this plays out? We know the government stepped in. Do you feel like we're past most of this or do you have any thoughts on how this continues to, you know, impact companies and particularly, you know, finance professionals.
2: It's a great question. So first, you know, everyone kind of like caught their breath after, you know, they let out like a sigh of relief whenever they found that the government was going to step in. And for the short term, it is great news. I mean, when I told my wife the news on Friday that SVB went under, she literally thought that like someone had died with the way that I looked with I told her, because it, it really was frightening. And I mean, we don't even bank with SVB. These are just our clients. You could imagine people who actually have their money there, their ability to make payroll, their ability even just like survive and all that. So I think many people are not really focusing on the long-term effect that this is going to have with the government stepping in. And I think this is definitely not going to help the economy. My hope is that it doesn't spread to other banks in which you have like ton more serious issues. But I imagine this is not gonna be good for inflation. I imagine ultimately, Things are probably going to get worse with the economy before they get better, and I'm just hoping that you know things don't really spiral out of control from here.
0: Yeah, and you know we definitely saw a little bit of that Monday as what did they hauled at almost 20 banks at one point or another from trading. You know, Credit Suisse just had to do a they admitted to a material misstatement. None of their board got their bonuses, and they have to restate some of their financials. So, I mean, obviously that. Puts a little bit of nervousness in the market. We all saw what happened to first regional yesterday. If you didn't, yeah, you, know, you probably should have what well, they dropped 60% at one point, which was very similar to what Silicon did, but they've rebounded. You know, they look like they're a more stable kind of balance sheet, but definitely I agree, Josh. There's still, you know, repercussions to come from this. It's not like something like okay, this can just happen and then you move on the next week and everything's fine. So Casey, how about what's kind of your thoughts
1: now as we've. You know, seeing the government step in, and as we move forward, I'm just going to say my opinion. I'm instead of like what anything could happen.
0: Oh no, it's all opinion, right? If we knew, we'd be rich.
1: I think the game is we were prepped pretty well after 08. and that's number one. Number two is this is a lot smaller than 08. The issue here is an issue is like the whole maturity issue as compared to inflated mortgages, right? That that's like a bubble that needs to pop. So there's definitely this accounting issue that's very real that's going to stem through the system of like. All your books are inflated. And the accounting rule changes, that's going to cause... I think the more interesting thing that I can contribute is not necessarily macro, but it's the tech world. So we just had a big session in OG about the downstream effects, and it's pretty fascinating. So for those of you who don't know, tech has obviously gone, undergone a recession and a dry up in capital in the last year. It was like heyday twenty one, and then it started slowing. If you're a tech company, for the most part, most of your life is raising money. If you're a Walmart, no big deal. You're not raising money. So your entire life is built around fundraising, which is what CJ and I do for a living we fundraise. We're CFOs at early stage, not EBITDA stage. So just think about that. Tech companies have to fundraise. They burn money like a rocket ship. It's already been hard. Point number 19, I've lost it. When you fundraise, you generally fundraise for 18 to 24 months. All right, if everyone's following me here, you're already 12 months in. So almost everyone has 6 to 12 months left. So what do you do when the equity markets dry up? You take VC debt. So everyone had the SVB dead on. They had bridge bank dead on to allow them to get through to a better point to get. equity. So the biggest ripple effect is a few. One is, oh my God, did the VC deadlines just disappear. So whatever you thought was 12 plus 18 is now back to 12. VCs are more spooked, not less spooked. So there's only two places to get money, customers and investors. Investors are done now, but they're like shut for business. Debt is shut for business, so to speak. And then customers. Okay, cool. Let's keep growing. If your customers are other tech companies. So what happens is, this is what people don't realize. Right now, all CFOs and OG are looking at their sales pipeline and cutting it in half. All of a sudden, all that money is going to come to save you and your forecast. That's gone. So you only just went from 12 to 8. And here's the other downward effect. Your receivables. People mostly think when you have receivables, you receive them. I have it on the other side. And you don't have money. You know what you do? Hey, accounting department, step aside. I'm taking over of AP. You know what that means? I'm not paying until LinkedIn turns off my LinkedIn. So now the entire spiral is going to happen where AR becomes a prepayment plan for everyone. But so, and I'll I'll end with this. So that's a big downstream effect. Another one's all the VCs, you know why they're pissed and worried? They have to fund all the next fundraises. What happens when you can't fundraise your inside investors give you the money. So my prediction is there's gonna be a massive amount of inside rounds that happen because they have to. So VCs with their powder are now like, crap, we need to save who we have because other VCs are coming to save. That's the next six, 12 months. So anyways, I think that's where the whole tech world is now set back and they were already
3: on heels. That is a massive downstream effect.
0: Agree. C- CJ, looks like you'd like to add something there, please.
3: I'm going to say something and maybe we can park this and revisit it later, but I see, and I hate to be the guy who's like pointing out the differences in terms, but like there's a big difference between A bailout in an insurance plan. And, you know, there are people around this table smarter than me, but my reading of this is that the funds are coming from an insurance plan that banks pay into, whereas a bailout is with taxpayers' money. I just wanted to throw that out there because I feel like in the news that I'm reading, it's the whole political conversation of, you know, is this, are bailouts good or bad for the economy. And I, I think it's neither here nor there. It's actually an insurance policy that it was doing what it was supposed to do. And I'm, I'm pro-insurance uh, as a CFO who wears both belt and suspenders to work. But uh, in terms of what'll change, I think like to piggyback on what Casey was saying, like bridge loans, like are kind of gone. Like those are vaporized. Like, and I also think it was, you know, kind of sucked how VCs had depended on and kind of begged... The likes of Silicon Valley and the Pac Wests of the world to hey, help me out, man. Do me a solid. This company really just needs a bridge loan to get by. Like I'll make you a whole in the future. And then this happens after thousands of bridge loans. So I think some relationships are irreparably damaged. I think on paper, equity actually looks better if I'm gonna have to lock up all my cash in one bank. Like there's a risk factor in that that's not baked in. But then again. Like Casey was saying, the multiples probably aren't going to look as great for equity. So you get that downstream effect. And then, you know, there are longer sales cycles. If your customers were worried about where they were going to get their payroll, there aren't a lot of CFOs who are signing long-term three-year contracts for software. Like they're a little bit shell-shocked right now and just trying to get their their bearings. And like, just like going on in the background of all this, we got to remember that two weeks before this happened, there were a ton of companies who are burning a lot of cash and trying to figure it out? Like, how do we write this ship? We're already in a situation where we're burning more than we wanted to. And then they get this scare that, on top of that, their cash may be gone. Like, I think this impacts people's mentality of how they look at their operating plan. And there are a lot of people who were about to have to make really hard decisions around their workforces and operating plans that are probably now sitting back like relieved, but also more cautious than they were two weeks ago.
0: Yeah. So there's clearly a psychological impact as well, right? You make some good points. The market had already been, you know, closed up to a certain extent for a while there. Companies didn't know if they were gonna get their payroll. I mean, I know somebody who spent all weekend a friend trying to decide if his company would survive or not, running cash flow and you know, he sent me a note. He's like, good news. I think we will survive. Like, you know, I'll still have a job come Monday type of thing. And then, you know, the announcement came out Monday, but just the reality of the stress of it, right? Many, I you know people who are VCs, I'm sure you do too. Casey, just people freaking out and trying to figure out how do we manage this? You know what it is like, 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders, multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop, breathe. Data Rails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Data Rails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FP&A machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. And so, you know, just a couple questions, and I'm going to go to a couple from the audience here too, but you made a good point, you know, Casey, about the, the hold to maturity that banks have versus available for sale. And just to add a little bit to that, if it's available for sale, you have to market to market, right? Which means as interest rates change, you got to reduce or increase the value depending on which way interest rates are going. If you hold to maturity, you don't have to do that on the balance sheet though. So there's a big unrealized loss there right now because interest rates have gone way up on a lot of balance sheets. I've heard some numbers as high as 600 billion if they were to sell it all today. Obviously, many of them don't need to. So one question we had from Zachary, he said, should we continue to allow banks to use deposits to fund VC debt? That's been a question that a lot of people have been asking. Any thoughts on that? Is
1: the VC debt product a viable one? Is that the question? The
0: question is, should banks be allowed to use deposits to fund VC, de- VC debt? Since it's a kind of higher risk debt, should they be able to do that with deposits? Is that a, a loan they should be able
3: to make? Like there's almost some hidden risk in there that what they're repurposing it for. Yeah, that's a question people are asking. That's an interesting one because it's a different risk profile that they're taking, I guess, in that investment strategy. The thing, and I'm not the best person to directly answer that question, but the thing that I think has to change is that like, the dirty secret is that in order to get a venture debt facility or revolver, you have to put all your cash with that bank to hold as collateral. But I think we're starting to see the flaws in that system, that it's riskier than you think. And I think boards are going to start to ask how many banks you bank with and then what you know, the main activities you do with each of those banks are. So who's your treasury partner? Who's your, you know, day-to-day banking partner for AR and AP and payroll? Who's your FX trading partner? And, you know, what's your plan of action if any of these kind of go out the window? So, you know, mapping out kind of your your treasury stack, I'll call it.
1: Yeah, the, the another big downflow is, I mean, in the operator world, we're all rewriting to go, by the way, if anyone want to join in, OG is writing a collective Wikipedia on a new way of running. So, Treasury 2.0, Cash Management 2.0, and all the lessons learned, exactly what CJ said. So, that's another one where the one of the after effects is way better Treasury. I don't agree that Series a companies are going to have high treasurers. I think I agree that there's going to be a lot more. It, it's not just a bank account that pays, does payroll. Well. Okay, that's kind of what it was at startup. It is way more sophisticated at this point, thanks to this. There's a very interesting question I would deposit So, the first thing I was thinking about is you get paid on the risk. So, in theory, it balances. Let's just say these are not 1% loans. Where it is messed up and I agree with CJ is that there's a lot of like, it depends on times are good. There's markups on equity, right? So the other thing is you give equity to the SVBs. Also, the fundamental flaw was when times were bad, guess what happened? This is what started the SVB problem. We pulled all our money out of SVB to use it. And by the way, it wasn't coming back in. There was no new deposits. And that's where the, the stream was pulled. Deposits were out to be lent. Now there's no more reflushing. And then they took a big bet on interest rates. So there is a fundamental flaw with the double usage, (laughs) triple incestuous thing. It works until it
3: And so that's a good call. It's like the Russian doll that one's inside of the other, but you don't really know. And you have that long-tail exposure to something that's riskier than what you think. That just blew my mind. I didn't like, whoa. Inception, man. It's inception. (laughs) If I could chime in, I'd love to ask
2: actually a related question. I was talking to my cousin over the weekend before all the news came out on Sunday and I was explaining what happened. And he asked me such a great question that I didn't really know how to answer. He said, well, what's the difference really between a bank and a Ponzi scheme? Now, obviously, there's a huge difference. It's not a scheme. Banks are legal, they're heavily regulated and all that. But How would you explain to someone the fact that a bank takes your money, gives it to someone else, and as long as you don't call your money by the time they get it back, everyone's okay?
3: I would say it's called fractional banking and the U.S. economy has grown by leaps and bounds compared to other economies because of it. But it's also the reason why I think our economy can spiral out of control potentially faster than other ones.
1: One variable is called trust, but the other is called assets. If that's a real question, there's assets, right? This is an auto loan. Bondi scheme is I used it to buy my own Ferrari and I'm not giving you any collateral. for it. That's called stealing. Good point. Lending versus stealing. That's why it's very trying to get to the point, yeah.
0: That makes sense. And I get what you're saying, Josh, in the sense of fractional that you're using people's money to continue to land and you're not keeping it all. But there's a risk profile to that. It's not like you're right, stealing it with the Ponzi scheme and just using other people's money to cover your mistakes, to hide the fact that you're stealing off the top, like a Bernie Madoff, right? You know, someone like that. So I think that's a good point. That's the difference. But I can see where people sometimes could wonder, right? But fractional allows us, has allowed us to grow substantially, as you mentioned, CJ. If they couldn't lend more than they take in, we wouldn't have grown at near the rate we would have because there wouldn't have been the investment dollars to fund you know, all the things we've done.
3: Yeah. I have a question I've been thinking through too, just for the group. And like this whole thing around the 250K limit, do you think it feels weird that it's the same limit for like companies and also individuals? Like, I guess I could have the same 250K insured limit as a multi-billion dollar company. And the second thing is in like, Casey, just in terms of like you running companies day to day, like how many companies have you worked at where like two hundred and fifty was like an actual limit? Like if you're at any semblance of scale, I feel like you need that for payroll. Like it's just unreasonable to think. There was a chart of how many percentage of accounts
1: that were under two hundred and fifty by bank. SCB was three percent. Yeah, I I saw something like that. I think I saw that number. The average was like thirty to fifty percent, and you know why? Because SCB is full of people like me that just raised eighty million dollars. So you're right. It's it's a good question. So but no, the, the, the concentration risk also exacerbated SVB. Because so someone said it best. The VC goes, your entire runway is in your bank. Pull it. Whereas like Walmart, what I'm making it you up. Know, those companies, it's like they're not. They're it's scary, but it's not their entire livelihood. When you when you put a gun literally to a company's head, let me tell you, all relationships are out the window. And that's what happened. It, these are guns to all little babies' heads that are not profitable. And yeah, the insurance is not there.
0: It's a good question. You know, People have been asking that. Should there be a different limit for individuals versus companies? Because the reality, a company can't take it and put it in all different banks, right? Sometimes payroll could be that. Or you know, a big vendor, you need that much in one account to pay it. So, I mean, really, it's a pretty arbitrary number, especially for businesses. And I think we'll see a lot of debate around, should it be higher, right? Which means then the insurance has to go up for the banks and where are they going to fund paying more to the government insurance, charging us more? Yes, it's not a taxpayer bailout, but we as consumers pay for it, right? And I think it's the right approach to take through the insurance than a bailout personally, but you know, we're going to pay for it one way or another. The banks are going to recoup their cost. By the
1: way, has it been adjusted for inflation or has it been 250 for like? <laughs> That's a good point.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure on that. If anyone knows, put it in the comments, but I'm going to run Go ahead, Casey.
1: I think it's still two fifty. Like you know, I'm like forty years old, so I think it's actually at least been around for thirty years. Yeah,
0: it feels like that. I don't ever remember it being anything else. And I'm,
1: yeah, you know. good point, TJ. I, the whole time I'm like, I couldn't even think about two fifty because it was so like a pimple. <laughs> but you know, it was like
3: it just seemed like this irrelevant thing. I mean, if you're running a ten-person business, I'm sure it's like fine, and that that makes sense. But like, yeah, or or individuals, it, it totally makes sense. But like, yeah, Josh, to your point, maybe there should be a different tier for like. LLCs with under a certain amount of people.
0: And maybe there's some other kind of, you know, different way to raise insurance beyond the banks. If you want to have a higher insurance level, there's a little bit of a fee you pay to protect those deposits. I don't know. There'll be a lot of questions asked.
1: (laughs) Is there a general insurance for all banks? Like the umbrella insurance for all banks? That has nothing to do with 250,000. I wonder if that's a thing. Maybe that's called the government. I don't know. But I think
0: that's called Uncle Sam.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Maybe out of this comes a pot of money just for banks to save each other. Um, no different than auto insurance.
0: Yeah, that'll be interesting. So I'm going to go through a few questions we had from people. So we have one here that said, you know, HSBC announced the purchase of SVB and assured UK depositors their savings are safe. And the person asked, and I'll just, you know, get your thoughts on this and I'll chime in. Maybe I'll ask you, Josh. You said, are those deposits really safe? Do you see any reason
2: people should be concerned if they've assured them the deposits are safe. I mean, I don't see why they would be too concerned. At the same time, it's not an assurance directive from the US government. But I mean, when you have a bank like HSBC, I mean, I would take it as safety. But I think the biggest thing for me out of all this is just stay vigilant and don't take anything for granted.
0: And I would agree with that. I mean, I think UK brokered that, it was involved in that transaction heavily. They've also said that You know, the money will be saved. So I think you should feel good about it, but you also want to make contingency plans if something goes wrong. I think that's at least my thought on that one. Someone asked, can you confirm shareholder funds is completely wiped out? You know, my understanding and anyone else can, any of you can correct me is, you know, the governments have been pretty clear. Look, equity holders, sorry, you invested, you lost money. That's how capitalism works. We're going to help the depositors here but there is no bailout for executives or equity holders. Is that all your understanding? Okay, it looks like everybody's aligned on that. Another question here, which I think is really interesting. So KPMG gave a clean bill of health just weeks ago. The balance sheet of SVB doesn't really imply it's at risk based, you know, getting a clean bill of health. Did KPMG make a mistake here? Any thoughts on that? What's your thinking,
3: CJ? You're nodding a little bit yes. There's probably a core accounting point of view, and then there's probably like a risk officer point of view, and then there's probably like a security analyst point of view and all this, and the right answer is probably a combination of all of them so k p m g probably was right by by the books and academically like they're very smart at what they do, but I think that it's hard to untangle and also like we talked about it at the beginning of this, but the social aspect of like how quickly these things snowball that's really hard to predict. But it it is odd that there were a couple of people like in the Financial Times and a couple of substacks were kind of pointing out some weird stuff that was going on and raising some flags. So like if they saw it, maybe some other people should have saw it too.
0: Yeah. No, it sounds like there are definitely people weeks ago raising it. And I saw a really interesting article that, you know, just kind of went through step by step what happened here. And it's fascinating to read. Yeah, another one that's interesting, someone pointed out, and the answer is yes here. You know, Hasn't the chief risk officer position at SVP been vacant for a bit? And my understanding is that position, they left June of last year, I think it was, and they just filled it in January. So, you know, hard to say that played a role because there would have been somebody under them managing risk. It's not like just because you don't have the chief risk officer, your risk department gets shut down, right? Any thoughts on that?
1: It's not a thought, but there was literally a meme going around that I don't know if this is fake or not. Joseph Gentili is the chief he's an administrative officer of SGB securities, and he was also the CFO of Lehman. I've heard that. So he has an epic resume. I think that the default is SGB was negligent. Like it's a management fault. I think that's the default. I think that's the most like common belief. And then the second is, there's a flaw in the fundamental system of how their business was built, where the belief they, they went wrong is duration, obviously. So I have a good friend who's a treasurer at Citi, a former treasurer, and I, I asked him, I go, dude, what what happened? And he's like, they did their job. They took their money and they put in treasuries. They didn't go put in crypto. But they go, well, but it's 10 years. Yeah, they were
0: long-term duration. By, by fact, they're,
1: right. they're like 10 years. They're like, if I'm a treasurer sitting there eating my Cheerios, one of the things I would think about is, what happens if interest go up? And I think what they said with the thought process at the time, it's to about at the time. It was, well, interest rates went up before or whatever. We had enough deposits. So what I really understand of the S B S history is they had the most incredible deposit run you've ever seen. So I think it was lulled into complacency of, we're always going to have the deposits. Everything would be fine right now if the funding environment for VZ continued contained. Because deposits would have stayed high. So they just took a bet. And that's the question is, so translation, they should have hedged. Translation, <laughs> instead of, they should just hedge the whole thing out. But you are also a public company. That's looking for yield. You have a pressure on management to grow the stock price, which is basically net interest income. So once you hedge, you hedge out any benefit, whatever. But what they should—that's the should of, woulda, coulda. If it goes up, we're okay past this point. That one hedging thing that did not happen because they took a bet on deposits and the good
3: times to rolling. You tell me whose fault that one. And there are kind of two cold ironies wrapped up in this whole thing. I, I wrote about it in my newsletter. It's called shameless plug, mostly metrics. The first one was that. SVB became one of the country's largest banks, specifically by making a long-term concentrated bet on startups. But then that ended up being the demise for the same reason, because the demographic of their customers was so highly correlated. And then the second thing, and this goes to what Casey was saying about the duration, is that they bought these US bonds, which means they were actually giving cash to the government. But then where it went wrong is that the government was the one who raised the interest rates And that was kind of a catalyst in it all. So I don't know. There was just something that felt ironic about the fact that they gave cash to the government and were locked into these long-term U.S. guaranteed treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, but then the government cranked the rate up, and that's where they got caught in that what they call a maturity mismatch.
0: Yeah, you know, as, as I've heard some people say, you know, when you see rapid interest rates, right, interest rate. Hikes you often have unintended consequences. And this is an nobody, you know, anticipated this happening. Now, should have Silicon Valley Bank hedge, sure. Should have they saw some of the deposits at the end of the day, was there some mismanagement? Yeah, we could all argue there was. I mean, they're gone. So obviously, what not saying intentional, but they should have managed it differently and they'd still be here. But you're right. There is the fact that the government, which is you know, really ironic that th- one of the things that did them in is putting their money in something that's considered risk-free, but it's only risk-free from the fact that you'll get your money back out. It's not risk-free from an investment interest rate risk, right? And this really highlights that there's more than one angle to risk-free. In the last few years, we haven't had to think about that, right? Interest rates have been near zero for so long that nobody's thought about interest rate risk. So I think there's also a sense of kind of lulled into security from the last decade a little bit. You know, at least locally internationally a lot more interest rate risk but when you're dealing with the government right the rates have been pretty rock bottom for a long time now i can see casey thinking
1: there i can tell he has something to say well yeah what's interesting is very commonly this is where you learn this by psychology for the for the masses including myself most of the time we think very linearly that's just a very common human thing right we don't see weird crazy black swans and so what what i'm saying is when you look back at crises this is the uh, kbmg audit question Yes, the books look good. What they're not paid to probably do is play out Monte Carlo scenarios of correlation. So we build a system, as Josh was saying, is this like interesting legal uh, policy scheme where we all rely on each other until it does And so every day we wake up, it's like it's working, so it should keep working. It's working, and but it's very hard to fathom the correlation it happened with um, God what was the Russian ruble crisis. Uh, of it's just like 30 years ago, where the hedge fund collapsed everything. Because it was also a system of it's working until it's not. So if you think about that, 08, and here, even COVID, a high correlation of different things, uh, what I'm starting to realize is there's so many underlying correlated risks in our world that are just hidden beneath the surface. And there's gonna be another one. I don't know what it is, but that's how humans build things is on trust and like greed, right? Oh, it's work. You go greed. That's how Wall Street gets built. More products, more services. Something is building in some bubbles building. You'll make a lot of money if you find the
0: So we have a question here from Veronica. She said, back in the 70s, Volcker raised rates to fight inflation, but no banks failed. What's different today? So I think the difference is the bank that fell here had a, a different profile from any bank in the 70s, a different concentration, and also had deposits coming down because of that tech concentration and what was going on. So it's kind of a perfect storm. It wasn't just interest rates. If deposits had stayed strong, they would have been fine even with the interest rate rise, because they wouldn't have had to call a bunch of bonds and spook the market like they did you know, have the run. And so I think there is a combination of things there beyond just interest rates that caused that. Anything anyone would like to add to that question?
2: You know, Initially, I heard a lot of people talking about the fact, oh, it's all because the government raised interest rates. But you really hit the nail right on the head there that it wasn't necessarily that the government raised the interest rates is that SVB's capital dried up and they were forced in order to fix their liquidity issues to sell a bunch of their available serial securities at a huge loss at the worst possible time. So it makes me wonder if they had adequate capital, if startups for a number of months before this, things were still booming like they were, like you said, Casey, in 2021, would we have had this issue? You know. And someone mentioned, I think Russian flu when you're talking about
0: the Russian thing there, we got a comment there and some others. But I want to kind of go to a question here that brings us kind of full circle and back home what advice would each of you offer you know to kind of companies going forward what's maybe a lesson they can take away from this especially for you know treasury finance fpna professionals you know maybe you know cj i know you're a cfo how are you thinking about this you know in your company to just you know be prepared if something like this happens again
3: I think strongly consider, you know, the terms of your venture debt deals, make sure that, you know, you're not just getting in bed with the right partner, but the right terms and parameters of it, including where you get to park your cash. It's a pretty scary thing that a lot of, you know, CFOs on Thursday had to like make the choice of, do I rip my cash out and be materially in breach of, you know, the contract that I have, or do I keep it in? And then I think you also want to dig into who your payroll provider works with. This is another thing that kind of went under the surface, but like a scary subplot was that major payroll providers got caught in kind of the weight. So like a bunch of startups who didn't even bank with SVB, they got all jammed up because they used a payroll provider who did. Same thing with payment gateways. So like, I think as CFOs, like we're, we're myopically focused on how cash enters and leaves the building. And as finance leaders, it, you also got to dig into the second order effects of like what happens in between those steps of when it, you know, enters and leaves the building.
0: That's a great point. That was something we discussed quite a bit last Friday is how does this impact payroll processing? Because I was on the cloud accounting podcast and they immediately brought that up and payroll. And you know, how does this impact the, the technical rails that are going on of moving money with SVP, which I think often isn't something you think about, right? You just think about, can I get my money out? not all those second order things that you mentioned. Josh, what's your thoughts? Any advice you'd offer here or
2: lessons learned if you've gone through this? My biggest thing is really to own and be in control of your data. And that's having like a laser focus and understanding on what exactly is happening with your business. And that doesn't mean that you're spending three hours a day putting together complex models. But ideally you have a really strong FP&A function where you could understand Everything that's happened with your business, everything that's currently happening, and then everything that's going to happen. And being in control of that story, allowing you to take action really quickly. I mean, startups are some of like the fastest moving companies on the planet. Just waiting like a day or two, like we saw from this experience, can be just total catastrophe. So my biggest advice would
1: just be being in control of your data at all times. Thanks. Appreciate that, Josh. How about you, Casey? What would you offer? So funny enough, I, I see problems in two worlds. One is systemat- systematic and one's idiosyncratic. I ironically am not too worried about systematic. A, if it happens to everyone, there's generally a bailout of some sort. If it happens to everyone, for example, I was worried of payroll. I really was. I knew, are you kidding me? You think politicians are going to let people not get paid? Are, no, I was not worried about that at all. You know what I'm worried about? If you're sitting at an FTA company, it's your company. Idiosyncratic, no one's going to save you. Okay, like that's your. So, what does that mean? And it's very similar to what Josh was saying. Having been a seven time startup CFO, I've increasingly become more aware of risk. I was naive before. I think so many, especially in Silicon Valley, were very big optimists. So, I think the biggest one is we don't look at the downside that much. So, very basic thing that happens is in budgeting. Some people have really serious downside surreals, but no one can do it, right? No one's, like, yeah, whatever. That's not going to happen. It's happening now. So, and it's scramble time everyone has an upside plan. Everyone has a base case plan. So the other one is what's really bad is when things go wrong and that's when you're really screwed. So I think it's to Josh's point, what can happen to us? Focus on a downside case a little bit more than one out. Roll it out. What happens? What happens right now? There's all these correlated effects. And as a former stock trader, what happens is if you think something's going down, it goes down way more than you think. Right. These go bad. They generally go worse than you think. So whatever the human fp a person is saying is downside is probably like, no, for startups, it could just be bankruptcy, right? Like, maybe that's what it is. And so they don't even need to talk about it. So it depends on your stage.
0: Really good advice there, I think, you know, in the scenario planning to focus more on the downside and have a plan for it. And you're right. In some companies, that may be bankruptcy. But, you know, for others obviously you want to try to avoid that as you can so at least playing it out and saying okay is there a way we can prevent bankruptcy if things go bad how what would that look like how would we do that i think scenario planning has become bigger and bigger and you know also monte carlo it was a great way in some situations instead of if you can't really assign proper weightings and you want to get a different you know statistical run it a bunch of times simulation that's another great way to go and it may reveal that oh this is a lot more risky than we thought it may help you come up with some plans you wouldn't otherwise have. I did notice one person said they think the limit used to be 100K for FDI insurance. And then after 2008, it went up. So I'm sure somebody will research that and come up with an answer. Maybe let will give each of you to kind of you know, give your last thoughts on this, any kind of parting words that you want to share with the audience here. And CJ, we'll start with you.
3: At the end of the day, you want to put yourself in every position to be in control of your destiny, and you want to increase your surface area for luck. The more technology I think we introduce, it's it's great, and you see a lot of cool new tools coming out. I think what changed the most after I saw this is, what can I do to have information faster to make better decisions across different systems? So it was a crazy situation that happened. I think we learned a lot from it. And um, you kind of control, what you can control um, as someone kind of in tech that moves fast. And I appreciate the chance for, you know, you invite me on too, and to learn from you, Casey and Josh. So thanks.
1: Thank you, CJ. Casey? This, isn't, this is, I kind of like a shameless plug. It's not. I get very often, so I, I'm a huge evangelist for startup operators. So everyone on this call, all the people who build every day. I love that. And that's what I spend a lot of my um, free time doing. So well, one thing I've always wanted to share, maybe I said in your podcast, Paul, is I get oftentimes for people who start in this business, is there a book? Is there an article? Is there a newsletter you could recommend me to? And it, I go into paralysis because, I mean, can you answer that? I can not answer that. But what I can answer, and there is an answer to this question, it's community. Think about your family. Think about when shit happens, which is what's going to happen. You don't know what the answer is. It's called Better Together. Sounds cheesy. But COVID, PPP, SCB, the next one, the community I have, I won't say the name because that's, uh, is saved me. It saved a lot of us. And more importantly, it's just like it's lonely. So the loneliest time is when something becomes uncertain. You don't really talk to your friends when things are cool. When things get weird, you all of a sudden talk to your friends. And so you have friends, why not have a professional community that's always there for you whenever. And it's incredible the Wikipedia brain hive thing that happens when you have people dealing with a problem together. And it's we've bonded over more. So whatever, if you don't have whatever community you have, whatever friendships you have, find one.
0: That is great advice. Having community, having mentors, having people that you can go to during difficult times that can give you advice is invaluable, right? Because none of us have the answer to everything. We're all learning every day and we should be learning from others. So
2: Josh, we'll give you a final word here. I wish I went second, cause I'm just gonna echo what uh, Casey just said. But in the height of the panic, literally whenever the news went out that, okay, they just went under, and I remember I was like texting someone on LinkedIn, cause like, I, I don't know, what does that mean? A bank runs under like, am I losing my money? And someone was like telling me like, yeah, you, it could be like pennies on the dollar. And like, you know, we were hugely affected. We have tons of clients who are banking with SVB and I'm going through these scenarios in my head. Am I gonna have to lay off half of my workforce? What's this going to mean? And in the height of all that panic, I reminded myself what you mentioned, Casey, and that's the fact that this is something that is affecting the entire tech scene. It's not alone. Like, think about the scenario in which you get robbed. And you get robbed, and like, literally, you're completely alone, and you're freaking this out alone, and like, it's a terrible thing. Like, everyone was going through this scenario together. And it was so frightening. I still had no idea what was going to happen, but just the fact that all these people were intertwined On top of that, the fact that the government really is very sensitive with payroll issues, which would have been the biggest catastrophe, mass layoffs, people unable to make payroll, that would have been the absolute worst. And like was that earlier, think of like the PPP loan, like anytime there's even like the slightest confrontation between an employee and an employer, the government will like almost always go on the employee side, like no doubt about it. So reminding myself of those things and having this amazing network of people who I could reach out to just to like learn more about what exactly happened, I think it was the most powerful thing that just kept my sanity and all of that.
0: But thank you for sharing that, Josh. And I know you and I had a few messages back and forth. and I know I had messages back and forth with friends that were going through all this, and it was good to you know get everybody's perspective because it just it helps ground you. It doesn't necessarily make it easier, but it kind of puts grounding to it and reminds you that others are going through it and allows you to kind of push through. So I would just want to thank our guests. Thank you, Josh, CJ, and Casey for being on. I want to thank the audience. appreciate the questions today and really appreciate you joining us we're gonna go ahead and wrap up but just a big thank you to everybody for joining us today thanks thanks
1: for
2: having us thanks for having me